Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Calvin, good to have you on the show. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me. So I'm really excited for this episode because Calvin has been an incredible mentor and friend, one of the earliest supporters of Conjunct Consulting, my first biz. Also an incredible entrepreneur and leader in the sustainable innovation space. So really excited to share your journey, Calvin. No, no, I'm so happy to reconnect with you after you've been gone for so much time. And it's been a real privilege for me also to have been a part of your conjunct journey. So such a joy to be here. Yeah. So for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Well, I am managing partner of Eden Strategy Institute. It's a strategy consulting firm with a specialized focus on sustainable innovation. This is a company that I founded about 10 years ago. We're just spreading our wings to different countries right now as a consultant and social innovator in my day job. Another big part of my identity, I guess, is also, of course, being a husband and a proud father of two young children. Yeah, amazing. So many fun things, obviously, that I would love to talk about from how we first got to know each other, as well as your fossil collection and some some things. Uh, (laughs) It's scary when you recount how many years we go back, Jeremy. (laughs) I know, over 10 years now. (laughs) Can you just just tell us about how your path for sustainable innovation first came about? Because it's not the hottest thing right now and it wasn't the hottest thing like 10 years ago. So how did you get started on it? Well, it's it's getting warmer, so I'm hopeful. Well, for me, I actually went into consulting for the first, say, eight years of my career. So I was with a market intelligence firm, just doing things like market sizing, value chain analysis, competitive analysis. And I really enjoyed the time there, just learning about different industries, different functions, different countries. And I guess, as with many consultants, up to a certain point in your career, for me, it was like maybe six, seven years into it. While I was enjoying the range and variety, I think many consultants very naturally want to ask ourselves, you know, where do you want to focus on? What's your next step? And is that a specialty that you should pick up? So at that time, I was often built by the company as a an expert in different industries. But honestly, that's just a consulting game. Very rapidly, you will stack up a bunch of experiences and then you will say, oh, you are a telecoms expert or a credit card expert and so on. But for me, what really resonated when I look back at many of my past experiences was really a couple of projects that I had the chance to work on bringing business into the non-profit space, helping UNICEF, for example, to do fundraising across the region. When I could see the power of business to be able to lend and create social impact that way, it felt to me like something quite new. Again, this was back probably in 2005, 2006. The words like social enterprise and investing and things like that were were not really so flavorful. It was just charity, right? And so I thought I would like to do a lot more of this work. But at the same time, working in a public listed company, you essentially have to do whatever work came along. So it occurred to me that maybe in order to focus on this, I needed to do two things. One, I needed to get hands-on implementation experience. And that's why I went into the Stock Exchange SGX, where I was VP strategy for an innovation to actually bring about innovation market development work. And subsequently, after a couple of years of doing that, I felt a bit more ready to start out my own company, Eden Strategy Institute. At Eden, I think the, the great, in a way, blessing that I have is that every day I get to do just this kind of work. I get to only do this kind of work for the last decade plus and to surround myself with like-minded tribe of people who also believe in the same change-making kind of cause. So I guess that's been the impetus for the journey. Of course, if you go into the journey, there are many ups and downs of just starting an enterprise, starting a consulting business, trying to challenge the norms of what the consulting industry is about and 130 over-year-old industry. And as an upstart, how do we anchor ourselves and how do we create value in a different way? That's also another story we can go into as well. 
Yeah, and I think what's interesting was that around this time is also when I first met you, you had just started up Eden Strategy Institute. And so you were very much quite early in your game as well. I'm so curious, what was it like to like decide to set up your own consulting C, which was uh, Eden Strategy Institute? I mean, you have kept going as you know VP Strategy, but you chose to build your own thing. So tell us more about that. Yeah, thanks. So when I first started, I guess we were very fortunate because when I went around to some of my past clients to just bounce off the idea, that time even the word MVP and custom validation, I think wasn't really quite invented yet. But as an intuition, I went to some past clients to say, I'm thinking of doing this, what do you think? And I was very fortunate that I had a couple of clients who were very supportive to say, hey, okay, you're starting this. Why don't you come and bid for a project? Uh, I'll open the door for you. So that that was an interesting story where, as I recall, I had just gotten married. I had just finished paying off my MBA. So I was pretty broke, honestly. The first client was General Electric GE. And a former colleague of mine who was working there opened the doors. He was doing some regional work. But he was not the decision maker. The decision maker was in Japan. And so this was a piece of work to bring healthy imagination into Japan. So I had to actually fly on my own back to Tokyo to pitch to the Japan office there. And with no assurance that I would actually get the piece of work, pitch against Japanese competitors. And Japanese, I think, culture is a bit more comfortable working with indigenous tongue and language and culture and things like that. So that was an interesting experience going in. And I was very fortunate to have actually one piece of work. And that started us going right from the very beginning. So before I even had a website up or brochures or <laughs> templates, I had a piece of work already. So I was just focusing on delivering value for that client. And then that led on to three or four projects, one after another in different markets. So we were quite fortunate that way. There is a story later when we talk about this topic of bravery and that I'll come back around later to talk about what happened with this whole incident. But I guess starting out wasn't too difficult. Subsequent to that, I think when the company grows at each stage of evolution, when you have two employees, when you have five employees, when you have 15 employees, each one is a very, very humbling journey. All the time we are figuring out, you know, how do we develop leaders? How do we secure the pipeline? How do we try to grow our brand and create our greater impact? So it's been a journey and every day we continue to learn and evolve. I mean, it was one hell of a thing to make a decision. I mean, it sounds like a crazy time to fly to Japan and bid for that piece of work. Was it scary? I mean, I guess, why don't we just go straight? You're talking about bravery and it sounds like it was a story to share. Tell us more about it. <laughs> sure. So with that client, subsequently it evolved into many different other markets. And at one point in time, after maybe two years, we were still working with this client and we were focusing on another market. And there was an incident where one of the client team members was quite keen to, in a way, perceive data in a different way from the way that our research had turned out. And going to that, you can imagine this payroll to account for. It was two years into the business. It was more or less our single client. We had sort of difference of opinion over what to do with this data. I had to choose to walk away. I had to choose to tell the client no and go into the vast unknown. So <laughs> actually the courage to do what you feel is the right thing to do came along for me as one testing point or a moment of truth. Quite late in the process, not really exactly when you started. Starting is not difficult. Starting is actually fun, right? Starting doing a business plan or doing your credentials is actually a very fun, hopeful exercise. It is when stakes are high, you are well into it and you have to walk away that I think it was a good test for me to know actually what I stood for. So to close that part of the chapter, I was fortunate also that because of the body of work that we had created for the client, several missions by then, within that space, that sector, we had a bit of a reputation. So then we managed to find a couple of other clients and then things continued again. So that was fortunate in a way, but scary at the same time. <laughs> Wow, that must have been a tough decision to make, especially when that's your like key account. Exactly, exactly. 
at that stage, actually, our only account. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's your only account is a key account, the most key of key accounts. <laughs> exactly, it's key. <laughs> Man, that's what a heck of a decision to make. And I think what was interesting is during this time also, in retrospect, I don't think I realized back then, but I first got to know you back in 2011, 2012. And for those who don't know, I, people ask me about the founding story of Conjunct Consulting. I always tell them, it's like, yeah, I used to work at Starbucks at City Hall, and then I'll meet clients at Starbucks. <laughs> and, then, and then they'll be like, wow, you're on time because I was there. Idea. They will finish the meeting at Starbucks and then I'll leave the Starbucks, I'll walk around to McDonald's and then get my lunch or coffee. And then after that, I'll walk back to Starbucks, continue working there. And then after that, people were like, oh, where do you get out? And I say, well, the second part of the story is that I went to Kelvin's place and I moved into his pantry. <laughs> that was the second phase of it where we had a bunch of people that were helping out. And we worked out of your kitchen. So your team would walk in to get some Coke or whatever. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I remember, yes. I forgot the quote, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it was good memories of that time. And I remember actually reading about you in the papers. You and Tia Chuan about Conjunct. I was like, wow, these guys are doing something so innovative and so interesting and quite aligned to what we are doing. But in a different way, I think you all were much more creative. For me, starting the company initially wanting to help nonprofits turned out to originally be a cross-subsidy model where we do pro bono work for these guys and sustain ourselves with the corporate stuff. That itself evolved. But looking at you guys, oh, actually, you figured out a beautiful model to use students and truly scale up, help many, many charities. Yeah, our first meeting was at, I think, Club Street or something. And we were talking about it with Konjang and it's been a nice 10 years, I think. Yeah, I think if it wasn't for you loaning out your pantry, we wouldn't have, one, a good story, but also, I think, you know, it's a very critical period of time for us to figure out a space. We're in Singapore, so we have no garages. But. Yeah, no garages. This is the equivalent of a garage. Yeah, exactly. You're right. We have no garages in Singapore. So this is the kitchen that food, food we have. Food we have. Garage, no. No cars, yeah. So those were the times. Yeah, and obviously you've continued helping out by being on the board of Conjunctions then, which is tremendous as well. And I think one interesting thing that you talked about was actually this interesting dynamic between, I think, the corporate side, the social sector, and of course, the government as well. I think you're one of the few people in, I would say, Southeast Asia who's a true leader in understanding all three spheres and how they work well together. Obviously, social sector, we know quite a bit about what they focus on. But I think one of the interesting things that I think about is you're talking about corporate and their leadership in social innovation. It's always a bit of a tricky thing because it feels like at one level, I think corporates are like, you know, these are the profit goals we're chasing. And then two is like, okay, people want to really help and figure out sustainability in terms of the process. And also there's that fear of getting labeled as greenwashing, you know, like just being hypocritical, being seen as hypocritical. And so I think you have this interesting dynamic and stewardship helping corporates figure out the next phase. What are some myths or misconceptions about kind of like helping corporates really kind of like interface and work well in terms of social innovation and working with nonprofits and governments? Mm, that's a great question. Well, I would say that just understanding why corporations do what they do from impact standpoint is important. And one of the myths, I suppose, is to take a single dimensional view as to their motivations. So there are corporations, certainly many of them who do it because of, for example, a license to operate, say, regulatory pressure. There are others who do so because it's an employee retention, attraction, motivation tool. There are yet others who do it, and these are the ones that we like to work with the most, because they see that a socially innovative strategy, fundamentally because it's more long-term, it's more inclusive, takes into account more stakeholders, it leverages off more partnerships, it makes for a fundamentally better strategy. 
So we like to be able to help them at their core strategy, at their core business unit and portfolio strategy. Think about how they can come up with products and all services that have this environmental, social and governance type of impact. So we can go into that in a bit more detail, but there's also something interesting that's been happening, I guess, in the last year or so since COVID started maybe awakening people to how really improbable threats can be very, very likely. So climate change has truly picked up pension funds, regulators, investors, and the banking community have truly changed. In the last year or so, we've seen much more acceleration of ESG-type behaviors, green bonds, social impact bonds, and things like that, than whatever we've been trying to usher along in the last 10 years. So I think there's been another mega trend, this big driver towards ESG that is encouraging people now to think differently. So that's also partially compliance, but partially because they see money as investments and there's new investor classes coming in. So I guess maybe the biggest myth is when we have a single lens, if we have a HR lens, CSR lens, or a product lens, or a compliance lens, and cost savings lens, to believe that doing any socially impactful work is just about that. However, when we can leverage all of these different drivers and translate positive and negative externalities into the proper value exchanges, not only within a company, but across its entire business system, we are then able to sustain any of the good work that they are interested in doing and turn this into a like truly sustained, right? Sustain it economically as well through viable products and services. So the few clients, for example, that we work with, we rarely actually work with CSR departments. We've had the privilege of working with a few on that and there are some that truly commit across their whole organization to a CSR initiative. But at the same time, there are companies like Samsung, Bell Labs, Microsoft, Medtronic, GE, for example, just hardcore companies that are more foresighted that they can see that there's a better way of doing business. So I think at that edge, pushing that edge, and of course, on right at the other end of it, it's just marketing and greenwashing that, of course, we try to stay away from. But pushing this edge is what we find most fulfilling. So I think you're selling yourself a little short here, which is... <laughs> For example, you angel invested in Biopharmist back in 2016, which is now almost a unicorn, last led by SoftBank. Yeah. So how did you spot Biopharmist? It was exactly a story like that. We were judging a healthcare competition and we met them. Before the competition, we were doing our rounds to just get to know them a little bit. And I was observing how Kudip, the CEO, was talking to his colleagues. And then I just pulled him aside to give him some advice to say from a management standpoint, maybe work on it this way. And of course, we grew them around their business fundamentals. And I liked it very much. Of course, they ended up winning that competition. And fundamentally, although they pivoted their business on a couple of rounds since then, the IP that they have, the mission that they have to be able to bring better cardiovascular predictive care was something that resonated very much with us. It was interesting. I think they hit a point where I think they were probably burning through their run rate. And so they approached us to say, can we support them somehow? And of course we did. We also hosted them in our office in their early days, their sort of humble days for probably half a year or so. And we tried to add value, looking at their business plan, helping to connect them with VCs. And since then, as their story has become quite public, they have gone on after Series A, B, C. And now they are close to being a unicorn and we are just so proud of them. With organizations like that, one of the things that I've learned is that I've had a chance of probably engaging with really like I think hundreds of startups and social enterprises over the last decade. And it's just once in a real blue moon that you see everything fitting together. The business plan, the market fundamentals, the entrepreneur, his team, the mission, our chemistry, all these things all fitting together. And that's where we decide to pull the trigger, even though it's not a traditional area of business for us. So it's been nice to ride along with that success as well. That's just amazing. So you heard it here first, like if Kelvin's kitchen slash office is a <laughs> special garage <laughs> for startups, one for conjunct consulting and one for bioformance. <laughs> you know, I think was so there's an interesting dynamic that you have. A lot of people really like what you've been doing here as well. And I think one thing that often people have is just like, and I think I've just had this call earlier today, is like a lot of them are like, why should I go talk to an angel? Like what's the value an angel can give me versus 
why shouldn't I just go to a seed VC now, for example? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I would say that, of course, the level of readiness before you go to a proper VC is very different. This is an area you know much better than me. The size of the ticket, level of traction you have to show is very different when you talk to an angel. In addition to that, I think, at least to me, I also speak from the perspective with my business school angels network, where every quarter or so we'll bring a bunch of startups in and then we'll look at the business school community to try to see if we can capitalize on investments. A lot of times, I find that angels motivations are very different. Certainly, there is an element of financial return. Of course, the risk appetite is much greater. But more than that, I would say that the motivations of an angel, probably 60-70% of them are actually more of wanting to just be of service as well. Where they find an entrepreneur that they want to bet on, then they want to spend time actually with the entrepreneur, lending their expertise, lending their social networks, uh, lending their experience as well, to see how they can help them along the way. I don't know if it's fair to characterize it this way, but I believe that certainly VCs have tremendous networks and capabilities that they lend as well. But in a way, I would maybe argue that because it's their core business, it becomes almost a business transaction where you start having quarterly targets and chasing your next round of funding and things like that. For us as angels, we sometimes our investees need patient capital, they need time, they need to make mistakes. Angels, I think, tend to be also a bit more forgiving. And I think in that sense, we just want to, it's okay also from a risk appetite standpoint, the amounts are not so big that if it really amounts to nothing, you can sort of write it off. So I would say that probably a big chunk of difference is in the nature of how flexible and accommodating that we want to be. Again, I haven't been on the formal VC side, so I only know half of the story. You can also give your view, Jeremy. Well, I think you're pretty much spot on, which is I think VCs are much more formalized structure. <laughs> so they're investing capital as, a, as an agent for someone else. Sometimes other people's capital. So you've got to be very, very careful about that. Exactly. So I think the goal is purely there. And obviously the best VCs have that duality right? where they're acting as a financial agent, but also they're working as a human person helping. But still, I think the growth goals, the structured ambition, I think they use the word portfolio construction as a nice way of saying this is what the range of outcomes should be within 20 investments. But that pretty much sets the parameters for the relationship. Whereas I think as an angel, you're investing your own capital. And for some people, the capital means a lot. And so for them, they're going to be more financially driven. But for a lot of people in the angel world, it's like the money is, it's a way to keep score in that sense. But it's like, yeah. it's an early conviction bet in that sense, but it's not necessarily the same. One thing, you know, I found to be interesting is also as an entrepreneur, whether you're fundraising or you're looking for your first client, it's very important for you to demonstrate that somebody else had believed in you first. You might have seen that video of the penguin jumping in. Being the first penguin to jump in is <laughs> always a difficult one. But the moment you start leading in the pack, all the other guys are happy to follow suit. So we've been thinking about that. Whether for myself as an entrepreneur, when I started up, I could talk about the many, many experiences that I've had in the past. But actually clients will be asking you, but as, as your company, as Eden, what have you done recently? So 10 years ago, it was not easy. It was a lot of naivety starting up. And I think with entrepreneurs, it's fundraising is very much the same, where the next VC will always be asking, who's believed in you already so far? And in some ways, I'm not sure about this, but I think having our support and endorsement, financial and otherwise, I think maybe also helps some of these companies that we support. I love that. The first penguin. I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to describe, I think. Being a founder also describes being an early supporter, an angel. Absolutely. You need people to believe in you, right? I mean, thank you for being the first penguin, I guess, for <laughs> conjunct, I guess. <laughs> and for bioformers as well. Absolutely. And I think it was the scary thing about being the first penguin is just like, you know, the water looks very cold and <laughs> full of predators and everyone else is all hanging out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. does it feel like stupid sometimes? Because it's just like, 
You know, if he, if he was like, like you said, the first penguin, everybody's going to jump in, but then everyone's waiting for the first penguin to jump in. Yeah. I guess, like, what advice do you have for people who are trying to decide whether to be the first penguin or just wait for someone else to be the first penguin? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a great question. I think, in a way, it goes back to one's life experience in two forms. Firstly, how ready you are to take the plunge. How ready you are, for example, let's say in my own case, when I had spent eight years with my first company, I had my client roster, I had my team, I had my PNL, I had my skill set. So starting up didn't feel quite as intimidating as if I was completely doing something new. I was just doing, to my mind, almost the same thing, except now it's my own vehicle. So I think getting yourself some degree of mastery of a particular domain helps to take out that risk. I think that's important. I think the other part of the story, I think is also how strong your stomach is, which is a function of, I would say, your conviction in the cost and your conviction in yourself. So this goes back to one's own lived experiences. If you've grown up leaning towards, for example, being very risk-averse, very nervous, uh, you've had negative experiences every time you took a risk, then of course you're not willing to do that. Conversely, if you come from a fairly, in my case, for example, I was fortunate to have come from a fairly stable and loving middle-class family. So while I have had my share of ups and downs, making a lot of my own mistakes, over time I can look back and look at my own ability or resilience to get out of my mistakes and then create a conviction for myself that, okay, I have some notion of self-belief. Even when no number of market analysis or cash flow projections or financial models, you know, they can only tell you so much. At some point in time, the leap of the penguin is really about jumping into the unknown. And how do you know you will be able to swim or fly or drown? It's really a function of your skill sets and your self-belief. So I think that's how I think about it. Of course, if there's a heavy mission orientation from an impact investor standpoint, even if financially it goes nowhere, at least you took the chance to create impact intrinsically, even if extrinsically you don't get the rewards. So I think that's also another motivation for some impact angels, if that's such a word. Amazing, Calvin. So paraphrase the three big teams that I heard from this conversation today to wrap things up. First of all, just thank you so much for sharing your early journey being a consultant and how you ended up making the decision to build your own company and how you got yourself ready and all the small moments associated with that, which is really nice. The second, thank you so much for being thoughtful about what bravery looks like. I think bravery in terms of founding the company, bravery in terms of being able to, I think, stick up for what you think is the right set of answers and deliverables that need to be delivered and being able to walk away when needed, even though that was your only slash key account. So that's a big one to make. And I think it's a tough one for a lot of people. And then thirdly, of course, thank you so much for talking a lot about, I think, dynamics of being an early supporter in terms of being a trendsetter for sustainable innovation, but also being an early supporter of conjunct consulting and bioformers as well as I'm sure many other startups that are going to come out as well that you helped along the way. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Jeremy. That's a great summary and it's been so rewarding and just as this conversation has. So thanks for your fantastic questions. It's nice to catch up. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.